1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to finish our thoughts on Jonathan for the day. Um, we're talking about the example of Jonathan, the example of Jonathan. And Jonathan gives us two great examples we should follow. The first is that we should be submissive in our fealty. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean that just as he did with David, we need to be prepared to submit our complete loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. And then tonight, we want to speak on being sanctified in our friendships. Sanctified in our friendships. This morning, we looked at submissive fealty. And we asked the first question, why was Jonathan, Jonathan expressing this fealty? And here's why. Because David went into a valley of death that would have killed anyone else. But he went in their place, and he got the victory. And because he got the victory, they could be free. You might see a certain picture there. All right? This wasn't just about his heroic exploits. It was far deeper than that. And then what was Jonathan expressing? And we borrowed from Mr. Phillips on this. When he gave him his robe, he surrendered his position. When he gave his garments, he surrendered his possessions. When he gave his sword, he surrendered his protection. When he gave his bow, he surrendered his prowess. And when he gave his girdle, he surrendered his plans. And so the so what of that's pretty clear. David's a picture of Christ. Christ went into a place of death that none of us could have survived. None of us could have gotten the victory. But Jesus went in there and got the victory over death and hell. And because he did that in our place, we can be free. And so we owe him, if nothing else, we owe him our submissive fealty. But now tonight, we find ourselves back in 1 Samuel 18. We'll read the first three verses. And we'll speak on the subject of sanctified friendship. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him in that day and would, not let, and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So, Father, would you help me tonight as I preach this message? I am excited to preach it. I was blessed in its preparation. But, Lord, I also know that that all the work and all the toil and all the study isn't going to do much of anything if you don't touch this thing and bless it. So, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts in an unusual way tonight? And would you help me? Help me not to mess this thing up, Lord. There's some great truth here. And I don't want to be in the way of it. So, Father, would you use me, perhaps even in spite of myself, and help us tonight to glean exactly what we should get from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest gifts that God has given us, short of obviously salvation and all that comes with that, is the gift of friendship. The Bible says no man lives to himself, no man dies to himself. We need each other. 
Hebrews 10 teaches us that the main reason that we gather together here and the main reason that God commands that we gather together is that we might provoke one another to good works. We are meant to help one another. We are meant to encourage one another. We need good, sanctified friendships. Now, unfortunately, there's a whole lot of Christians that have embraced friendships that are less than sanctified, and that never works out well. But then there are folks that their their friends are other Christians. But I don't I don't know how else to put it except to say we don't necessarily handle it right. We aren't always the friends that we should be. And I think that as we move forward in our ministry, we're going to need our friends maybe more than we ever have before. And so it's imperative that we be the friends that we ought to be to one another. And we see this beautifully illustrated in the friendship between Jonathan and David. I don't know of two friends that were faster, that were more an example of this than these two. When I think of biblical friendship, the first place that my mind goes to is David and Jonathan. And so we're looking at the example of Jonathan. That should be the example of Jonathan. Um, in sanctified friendship. In sanctified friendship. So let's talk about that. First of all, sanctified friendship transcends age. I want to give credit to a man named Chad Bird. Chad Bird is a uh, theologian, and I probably wouldn't agree with him on everything, but he brought up a point when I was reading that put this one point in my mind. And he did some legwork in my place, and I want to make sure he gets the credit for the legwork that he did. If you're like me, you've always assumed... Now, you remember this morning I talked about that what went on in that covenant between Jonathan and David is especially remarkable because of one truth. Remember I said that this morning? This is that truth. This is what makes what we talked about this morning infinitely more remarkable. Okay? We tend to think of Jonathan and David as being roughly the same age. I, I always haven't given it much thought, to be honest with you. They weren't. They weren't even close. Now, follow this train, okay? According to Numbers 1-3, Israelite men did not begin as soldiers until they were 20 years old. Okay, 20 years old. At the beginning of Saul's reign, Jonathan was already a soldier, according to 1 Samuel 13. So he is at least 20 when Saul begins his reign. Okay? Acts 13-21 tells us that Saul reigned for 40 years. So if Saul, if Jonathan was 20 when Saul began his reign, when they both died in the same battle, 1 Samuel 31, how old was Jonathan when he died? 60. That's why I got that picture. See? I didn't look like Jonathan. More so than you think, probably. Okay? All right? Now, here's what nails it down for us. According to 2 Samuel chapter 5, 
when David began his kingship, which obviously began at the death of Saul, Jonathan was 60. David was 30. Jonathan was, at minimum, 30 years older than David. Now, do you see why this morning's message is all the more remarkable? That, that a man 30 years older than David would offer that kind of fealty. Probably David was around 17 years old when he killed Goliath. So that makes Jonathan 47. Now, I'm 48, so I'm right in there. That would, that would be the equivalent of me offering my fealty to Isaac, to Barak, a few other of you in here. That would be unusual. That would be remarkable. That would say something about the character of those young men. Consider the implications of this age gap. They was probably about 15 when he was anointed to be king. Jonathan would be 45. If David was about 17 when he slew Goliath, Jonathan would have been 47. If David was 20 when he became part of Saul's army, Jonathan would be 50. And if David was 22 when he left Saul's court, Jonathan would be 52. Now, it's important to remember that while there probably was some mentoring involved here, this was not an apprenticeship. This was a friendship. I've got plenty of young men that I try to mentor. And I would even call them my friends. But in, in our modern culture, does it lend itself to what we see in Jonathan and David? Not really. Not really. Now, here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Okay. How many godly friendships have we failed to enjoy and failed to benefit from because we deem the other person to be too young or too old. I appreciate the experience of the older people in our church, and I want to benefit from that. And I'm all for mentoring and things like that. But can I tell you something? The best thing you can be to one another is a friend. And young people, it's the same way for the young folks. Don't look at people that are older than you and say, oh, I'm not going to gain anything from that. I'm not going to glean anything from that. No, let me tell you something. The older people of this church can be tremendous friends to you. Tremendous friends. So if we're going to have sanctified friendship, first of all, it's going to transcend age. Number two, sanctified friendship celebrates others' blessings. Look at verse 1. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now remember, we're talking 17 and 47. Okay? Let's back up to 1 Samuel 17. Who should have challenged Goliath? Saul. By the way, not only because he was the king, 
But Saul was probably the biggest man out there. The Bible says he was head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. So Saul was a big man in his own right. Not nine foot nine, but a big man. But he didn't. And in his unwillingness to take that position, who should have stepped in? Jonathan, the captain of his guard, the general of his army. In fact, you go right down the line. There wasn't an Israeli soldier out there prepared to take on Goliath. It took a 17-year-old red-headed kid to step up and do the right thing. It would have been very easy for Jonathan to resent David's accomplishment that day. If for no other reason than his own shame. And we see that happening with Saul, don't we? Saul, didn't, Saul never got over it. But Jonathan, yeah, he should have been out there. But at least he had the right response when David was celebrated as the victor that he was. Jonathan celebrated it. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says this. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, bless them with perse- which persecute you, bless and curse not. Now listen to verse 15. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. It is so easy. Listen to this now. It is so easy for Christian friends to fail to celebrate the victories or accomplishments of others, particularly if it seems to reveal a shortcoming in their own lives. Now, I'm going to get a little bit personal, and I hope you understand that I'm not trying to hurt anybody. But how many times have we failed to celebrate the blessings of our friends because it didn't sit right with us? Brother such and such bought a new truck. I don't know how in the world he can do that. I work myself to the bone. I can't go out and buy a new truck. I hope he, I hope he got a decent payment on it. Is that, is that Christian? No. No. What should we do? Man, praise the Lord, man. I'm glad you're able to benefit from that. I'm glad you're able to. I'm glad, you say, well, that's not natural. No, Christianity is not supposed to be natural. It's supposed to be supernatural. You know? Somebody gets a job promotion. Huh. I've seen how they work. Where's mine? Hmm? Oh, ladies, I hope you know I'm not trying to hurt you. But maybe you've been trying for something in your life, and God's not seen fit to bless you with it. It's okay to be sad about that. It's okay to hurt over that. But don't hold it against somebody else if God blesses them. See, Andy, that's harsh, but this is where we need to be tonight. This is where we need to be. 
as a preacher, I've really struggled with this. We have in our mind what we think our church should look like, where we think we should be. And I'm thinking of guys that I went to college with, and when I knew them, good night, they didn't even act like they were saved. And now they're pastoring churches, and every time you turn around, they're having high attendance days, and they're parading all the people that join their church, and all the people they baptize, and their arm around somebody they won to Christ, and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world am I doing wrong? What am I messing up on? But what I should be doing, Lord, thank you that those people are being saved. Thank you that that ministry is growing. Thank you. And the fact is, if that's not my attitude, then I am not a good, sanctified friend. I don't know why they're singing about David. Okay, he got lucky. He got a lucky shot. Could have just as easily been killed. But David, ooh, David. You ought to see David walk on water, although that hadn't happened yet. You know? But if we're real sanctified friends, we're thankful and excited for people when they have victories, but when they enjoy blessings. Is this the toughest one? Mm-mm. Sanctified friendship transcends age. It celebrates other people's blessings. And you know what else? It can be trusted. I want you to go over to 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23, David has now fled Saul. He's on the run. He's in hiding. Saul has demonstrated over and again that he intends to kill David. So David is in hiding. 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David. Let that sink in. Saul has no idea where David is. But Saul's son knows exactly where he is. Why? Because David trusted Jonathan. Jonathan, the captain of Saul's guard. Jonathan, his heir apparent, the crown prince. And David so trusted Jonathan that he gave him the most vital information he could give him. And that was his whereabouts. He trusted him with that. He knew that Jonathan would not betray him in speaking. He knew that Jonathan would protect him from those who would harm him. Let me ask you a question. As you think of your Christian friendships, or any friendship for that matter, can your friends trust you to protect them? 
Now, as we get into this, I want to be very clear. When I talk about protection, there's to be a vast distinction made between protection and a cover-up. I'm not talking about a cover-up. I'm not talking about a cover-up. If, if Brother Aaron comes to me and says, listen, don't tell anybody, but I've had enough of Deanna, and I know how to get rid of her. <laughs> this isn't protection. That's a matter of cover-up. Okay, Not going to do that. Boy, we fail all the time, though, don't we? And I wonder if there's ever been a time that somebody's come to you hurting. And they've confided something in you or in me. And we could not wait to tell somebody else. Now, we cloak it in a prayer request. But sometimes that's not appropriate, is it? Sometimes it's up to us to conceal the weaknesses of others. Remember, there's a difference between faults and sins. I'll give you an example. I'll use Brother Davies again. Brother Davies has enough on me probably to get me fired. What do you mean? Are you talking about sin? Nope. But he knows how my temper can be at times. He knows how quickly I can get frustrated. And he said, why are you putting this out here in front of us? Because you got these problems too. And do you know who I think he's talked to about when he's seen me at my less than my best? The answer is nobody. The Lord, ideally, but I, don't, I hope there's nobody in here. He's picked up the phone. Let me just tell you, he is on the rampage today. <laughs> Good night. You see, Andy, I don't know if that's biblical or not, this, this concealing people's weakness, wicked, weaknesses and, 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 and that kind of thing. Listen to Proverbs eleven thirteen. The talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. Proverbs 17, 9, he that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth the matter separateth very friends. Let me tell you something. As a pastor, there have been times that people have come to me with tears in their eyes, and they have confessed all kinds of things. Preacher, I'm struggling here, and I'm struggling here, and this happened, and this happened. And there is, and now, obviously, we've made this very clear. You confess to a crime, put you're in imminent danger. Somebody else is in imminent danger. I'm not sitting on that. But if you come to me and say, Preacher, I'm struggling with this, or I'm struggling with that, You've got to know that you have, I have your confidence. You have to know that I'm not going to pick up the phone and talk to everybody about that. You have to know that I can be trusted. And, and listen, if we're going to be Christian friends, it has to be a situation in which we know rock solid we can be trusted. How many of us know, having gone through life, that the number of people we really trust in life is getting smaller and smaller smaller boy everybody's got an agenda don't they who stood most to benefit from David being taken off the scene Jonathan and who was the one person in Saul's court that knew where David was Jonathan that's some trust right there 
That's some trust. If I want to be the friend that I ought to be, it's going to transcend age. I'm going to celebrate other people's blessings. I'm going to be somebody who can be trusted. Here's the last one. It's a friendship that embraces truth. We're still in chapter 23, verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee, and that also Saul my father knoweth. What's he saying? Dad's not going to get you. You're going to be the next king, and I'm going to be your right-hand man. Now remember, what makes that all the more remarkable? First of all, Jonathan is yielding his own claim to the throne. If you've been raised to be king, that's a hard thing to let go. If the Lord lets me live long enough and Jesus hasn't come back, there's going to come a day that God's going to whisper into my heart and say, it's time. It's time to give the keys to somebody else and let them take it over. I joke about, you know, I turned 70, that's 35 years, it's time to go. And I do hope, I do hope that's about how it works out, if the Lord lets that. But I also know that when that day comes, it's not going to be easy. When you've invested your life into something, I mean, I, it's just like every time I do a wedding, who gives this woman away? Whew. I don't look forward to that question. And I've just got one to say that to. What about Asher? I'm not giving him away. He's taking somebody else. I get to keep him. You know, who gives this woman away? Nobody. I've changed my mind. This thing's over. <laughs> I'm tough enough on premarital counseling when they're not my kids. Can you imagine what I'd be like if I did premarital counseling with my kids? Whew. Man. How do I know that Bethany and Foster have a good shot at having a good marriage? Because they survived my premarital counseling. And yes, survived. Not just endured, survived. That's a tough question. He makes no argument against David's age, his experience, or lack of rural heritage. Now, here's the question we got to get answered. Jonathan says, you're going to be the next king. Do not shout out answers, okay? But think about it. Who told him that? Who told Jonathan that David was to be the next king? Now, the easy answer is God. I don't think that's how it happened. All right, so let's go in order. Saul, 
Nope. I don't believe it was Saul. First of all, I can find no record in the whole narrative of Samuel ever identifying Saul's successor by name. In fact, you remember, when Samuel went to anoint David, he did so under cover of a sacrifice because he didn't want Saul to find out where he was and what he was doing, and that's what God told him to do. And when, when, Samuel, when Samuel told him, after the whole thing with Amalek, when Samuel told him that he was going to lose his kingdom, he never named David. 1 Samuel 15, 28, Samuel said unto Saul, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. That's all he said. Samuel went to great lengths to conceal this whole matter from Saul. 1 Samuel 16, we see that. When he goes to anoint him, he, he says he's there for a sacrifice. He doesn't want any word to get back to Saul of what's going on here. You say, well, Saul said a lot about David being the next king. Saul's accusation that David aspired to be the king and his paranoia that people would make David king does not mean that Saul knew that David was anointed to be king. He just thought David wanted the job. So I say all that to say this. I see nothing in the biblical narrative, and I did sit down and read from chapter to chapter the whole narrative and didn't find one spot that told me that Saul actually knew that God had sent Samuel to anoint David to be the next king. So did Saul tell Jonathan this? No. How about Samuel? I don't believe Samuel did either. Most notably because I don't see any record of Samuel having a whole lot of direct connection with Jonathan. Talks to Saul a lot, but not Jonathan. And it would seem prudent to Samuel to conceal from Jonathan what he's concealing from Saul. Right? So who does that leave? Who told Jonathan that David would be the next God-ordained king of Israel? I'll tell you who it is. David. It's the only one left. And it probably happened somewhere around our text in 1 Samuel 18. And I've wondered, how did that go? Oh, Jonathan, I sure do appreciate everything you're doing here. Uh, you want the good news or the bad news? I don't know how you'd broach that subject. But at some point, and I tend to think it was this was what led Jonathan to express his fealty to David. He understood this man is God's ordained man for this, this country. Now get this. David had the courage to tell Jonathan a potentially unpleasant truth that he needed to hear. I promise you it was not easy for David to tell him. And if it was, then he had a bad attitude. Hey, Jonathan, by the way, I'm the man. No, I'm sure it was difficult for him. Have you ever had an occasion in which you needed to give somebody an unpleasant truth and you had to ask God for the courage to do it? David did.
But perhaps even more impressive is that Jonathan has the integrity to accept a difficult truth from the Lord through his servant. Jonathan, Samuel anointed me to be the next king. Say what? (laughs) Well, Samuel's getting old. Samuel probably wasn't thinking straight. I, I I don't know if you understand this, David. I'm the king's son. I'm 47. You're 17. You're a kid. Delusions of grandeur. You better get over that real quick because you're wrong. It's not what he did. He listened, and he had integrity, and he accepted a difficult truth. David's delivery of the truth and Jonathan's Jonathan's reception of the truth speak volumes about the depth and purity of their friendship. Now, if you have a seatbelt in your pew, buckle it now. Okay? I want you to think about your Christian friendships. Perhaps there are people in this church, people outside of this church. I want you to think about your Christian friendships. How much do these friendships really embrace truth? What do I mean? If you have to deliver a difficult truth to someone lovingly, are you willing to do it? Or do you find a way to brush it off to somebody else? I'll pick Brother Hensley because this, I can't imagine what ever happened. Let's say Brother Hensley goes through this, ex- this extended time of just bad attitude, difficult, unkind, and everything else. At some point, as his friend, and I, I leave room for a bad day, but if this is, if this is a pattern, as his friend... I've got to have the courage and willingness to go to him and say, Brother Hensley, I love you with all my heart. I've got to tell you, I, I, know, I know I'm no better than you, but I've got to tell you, your attitude's not been great. Your testimony's been compromised a little bit. I'm concerned for you. Is that pleasant? No. Nobody wants to do it. That's why more often than not, you know what we do? When people act the fool, we just mm-hmm, act like we don't see it. And what happens is people get more and more entrenched in bad behavior because their friends aren't willing to say something. Well, they're not going to like it. Of course they're not going to like it. I can think of two times in my ministry that somebody has sat me down. It's happened more than this, but two have come to mind. The people have sat me down and said, Pastor, I think you blew it on this one. And I didn't like it, I didn't enjoy it, but they were 100% right. And if somebody hadn't said something, I'd have kept on on that trajectory and maybe lost my ministry eventually. But somebody had the courage and the love to say, Pastor, that's not right. 
Now, I understand what I'm inviting here. A line of people after the service. Well, preacher, you said. <laughs> okay, you make sure you got Bible with it, all right? This isn't just, you know, I got a bone to pick with you. I mean, since you brought it up, I don't like that jacket. You know, I mean, that, that's not what we're talking about here. All right. But then there's another side. Are you willing to receive a difficult truth from somebody who loves you without getting angry? I think this last point is maybe the biggest of all of these because in all my years of ministry and all my years of being saved, I have seen this over and over again. I have seen Christian friends that cannot be truthful with one another. You know what ends up happening? We don't get any better because nobody is willing to tell us what we need to hear. It's just like coaching. No, no athlete's going to get better if you can't criticize what they're doing. Is there a right and a wrong way to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And are there times that I, don't, I wouldn't have to say something to a ball player because I already know they know what they did wrong? Sure. But you see a ball player that's got a bad habit and they keep doing it, you've got to correct it. You have to or you're not a good coach. If you've got a friend that's got a habit that they keep doing, keep doing, and they're getting worse and worse and worse, and nobody bothers to say anything, that's not good friendship. I don't know if that's biblical. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy... Are deceitful. How many parents have had to hand their children over to a doctor to do a surgery or a procedure or something else, and the child's crying, mom and daddy's crying, it's going to hurt, it's going to be rough. Why do they do it? Because if they don't, it's going to get worse. And too often, Christian friends lack the courage to deliver helpful, godly truth because they loathe confrontation. And too often friends fail to receive real and helpful, albeit difficult truth, choosing rather to get affirmation for the position they have already adopted. What do I mean by all of that? We're not willing to speak truth into people's lives, and many times we're not willing to hear it from others either. This is not a huge problem, but it exists in every church I've ever been a part of. If you come to me for counsel, be prepared for me to disagree with you. Now, sometimes I won't. But if we're seeking counsel, whether it's from the pastor, from our spouse, from our friends, or whoever, if we're seeking counsel and all we want is for them to affirm the trajectory we've already placed ourselves on, there's no help in that. Preacher, I don't understand why everybody seems to hate me. Well, first of all, I don't think everybody hates you. 
By the way, I have not had this conversation with anybody, okay? Right now, you're like, wait a minute, did I bring that up? No. I'm using something that's, that's, that's way out there. I don't understand why everybody hates me. Well, can I, can I point out some things that maybe might contribute to it? What? Yeah, you asked. Maybe you shouldn't be so hateful. Maybe you shouldn't be so contrary. Maybe you should this, maybe you should that. And then they leave my office huffing. I can't believe preacher said that to me. And they can't be trusted either because they get on the phone. Do you know what that preacher said about me? <laughs> what good is any friend who can't be truthful? And what good is any friend who won't be truthful? Now, are there times that it's, it's benign enough that it's not worth getting into? Yep. Yep. But are there times that we have a responsibility to say the truth? Or we have a responsibility to receive a difficult truth? It's quiet in here tonight. I, I hope I've been clear. And, and I hope that my spirit has been what I intend it to be. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not thinking of any situation in particular. This is just where the text took me, you know. So what? If you're here tonight, if you're watching online, you've never been saved. I'll just put it real simply. Jesus is the dearest friend you could ever have. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And he laid down his life for every one of us. With all due respect to my Reformed friends, whom I love, limited atonement is not scriptural. Jesus did not die for a limited group of people that we call the elect. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And anyone who wishes to be saved, if they'll call upon Jesus Christ by faith, they'll be saved. Anyone. Okay? So, if you're lost, this whole thing about friendship is meant to introduce you to the dearest friend you'll ever have. But if you're saved... Jesus embodies this friendship, doesn't he? Does your friendship with Jesus transcend age? You better believe it. He's older than all of us. <laughs> He's ageless. John fifteen fifteen is such an interesting verse to me. He's speaking to his disciples, and by extension, he's speaking to us. He says, Henceforth, I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. Meditate on that for a second. The almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy, spotless creator of the universe wants to be 
your friend. Meditate on that for a moment. Jesus wants to be my friend. And I want to be a friend to others the way Jesus is a friend to me. Do I fail at this sometimes? I sure do. Who needed this message tonight? Me. Me. Boy, if I'm the friend I ought to be, I need to look to Jonathan's example. First of all, it needs to transcend age. Older folks, you can find great friendship in younger folks. And younger folks, you can find great friendship in older folks. I'm all for mentoring, and I'm all for apprenticeships and everything else. But sometimes these groups, whether they be young or old, just need a friend. A friend. One of my dearest friends is a man back in Petersburg. He actually lives in Disputana. It's one of those towns that does not pronounce the way it's spelled. It's spelled Disputanta, but you dare not say that. It's Disputana. Just like you dare not say Withville. Nobody lives in Withville. We live in Withful, right? Yeah. He is significantly older than me. Significantly. He is much more experienced and much more knowledgeable and periodically we call each other up and it's not for him to tell me how much more he knows than I do and it's not for me to tell him how much more I can get done than he can we're friends and we talk about what the Lord's been doing and we encourage each other and I cherish it I cherish it It should transcend age. The fact is, young people, you could use a dose of what some of these older folks have. And older folks, you could use a dose of what these younger folks have too. And I don't just mean their energy. We ought to celebrate others' blessings. Don't be jealous. You know what happens when you get into that mindset? That's the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. I know somebody that's on my mind right now. I don't know if the Lord brought them to my mind, but they came to my mind. They've been trying to get married for years. And I get it. I was married later in life. I get it. I, I have been at weddings where I look up there and I'm like, that groom doesn't deserve her for nothing in the world. <laughs> what in the world? I'm ten times the man that guy is. But I'm going to tell you something. Every time somebody gets engaged, that dear person gets as bitter as all get out. Because it's not them. Again, I'm not minimizing that, those kind of pains, but that's not Christian. 
We're to rejoice when others rejoice. So if the preacher down the road builds his family life center before I do, I'm to rejoice. Easy preaching. Hard living. Somebody advertised Ambassador Academy down at Royal Retreat Baptist Church. And for whatever reason, they tagged me in it. Apparently, they don't understand that we're competing. So we're not competing, but you know what I mean. We're a different school. <laughs> they tagged me in it. You know what I did? I shared it. Good school, good people, and I hope they succeed. And they are succeeding. God's God's using them to help people down there. Praise the Lord. Now, if Jacob starts catching up with us, I might back that off a little bit. (laughs) But (laughs) truth is, I could stand to have his numbers in church. You know, and he and I he and I talk frequently. And I love talking with him. You know why? Because we don't get on there. How many did you run, brother? Less than you, again. You know. No. We encourage each other. Had somebody saved last week, man, praise the Lord. That's great. That's great. That's how it's supposed to be. You know what else? Our friendships need to be ones in which we can be trusted. We're looking out for their best interests and striving to keep them safe. And then finally, no matter how bad it hurts, no matter how hard it is, we've got to be willing to embrace truth. Man. Aaron and I have had to make decisions over the last few years for the school. And I want to make it clear, he has the authority to make those decisions. But oftentimes we talk. And he'll get my thoughts on it. And there have been times over the years that we've had to pick up the phone or send a letter or have somebody in and tell them, your kid has a problem. Anybody thinks we enjoy that or that we look forward to that or that's fun, it's not. Sometimes they receive that truth with gratitude. But many times, they don't. So what do we do? Quit telling the truth? No. Now again, we're not looking to just start nitpicking everybody and, well, let me tell you what your problem is. No. You know that. You know that's not what I'm saying. But if there's something damaging in our friend's life that is hurting them, we've got to be prepared and willing to lovingly say, Can I pray with you about this? I'm concerned about this. Can I help you? And if that happens, you know what you need to do? Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord that somebody was willing to do that. I'm going to give you an example of this and we're done. Did Jonathan's willingness to receive this truth and act appropriately impact David? Absolutely. And I can prove it. 
Jonathan's long dead. David messed up. Doubly so. He committed adultery, and he killed the woman's husband. And he's been sitting on his throne living a lie. And a prophet by the name of Nathan walked in and told him a story, a parable. And David was mad. And Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, Thou art the man. Just as he had to deliver an unpleasant truth to Jonathan, Nathan had to deliver an unpleasant truth to David. Thank God that he did. How did David respond? If you look at the lineage of Jesus, through Joseph, Jesus has a legal claim to the throne of David. Through Solomon. Because, and you know, there's a curse there, a curse on Jeconiah and his seed. Jesus circumvents that curse because Joseph is not his physical father, only his legal one. But his physical right to the throne of David comes through Mary. Mary also is a descendant of David. But she didn't come through the line of Solomon. She came through the line of David's son, Nathan. Who was Nathan named after? That prophet that walked in and said, David, you're the man. Did David appreciate that? I want to be a friend that's willing to speak an unpleasant truth and willing to hear an unpleasant truth and not get angry. I want to be in a friendship that embraces truth above all else. Let's strive to follow Jonathan's example of sanctified friendship.